Okay, so we're continuing with the series Encounters with Jesus. And as you've already heard today, we're looking at the man at the pool of Bethesda, or Bethsaida, depending on which rendition of the Bible you use. But before we get into the passage, I'd just like to warm us up by thinking about the attitudes that we have to people. And I'd like us to think about it in one of two ways. If we are looking at someone, do we think, ah, can you just do that for me? Ah, a sort of sense of sympathy or compassion. Or do we think, ooh, can you get a, can you do an ooh? Ooh, I'm not too sure whether that person deserves my compassion. So let's see some faces on the screen now. And I'd like to hear you either an ah or an ooh. So here's the first one. <laughs> I thought we were more compassionate than that. Is anyone an R? Little bit of an R. There's some lovely people here. I knew there'd be one or two. Jose Mourinho. Not sure. That's a little bit more of a mixed reception. Can you just make a decision and then let's hear it all together? Ready, Mourinho? Ooh, ooh. I'm just picking up the mood of the camp. What about Joe Brand? In the news this week, I don't know whether you heard, made quite a controversial statement on Radio 4. Um, can we hear again what you think? Mm. Okay, a bit more sympathetic to her. Next one, Tiger Woods. Oh. Oh. Okay, keep going. Madonna. <laughs> Is there anyone we like? Um, I, I did pick controversial characters. Next one. Some people were really trying not to betray what they think there, weren't they? Am I allowed to say an R? Um, finally, for the grand finale, it had to be... <laughs> Come on, does anyone think R? Let me just hear the R's. Ah, That is lovely. I knew we'd have some people that have compassion for absolutely anyone. <laughs> now, in the story that is a character, he's called The Man. And as we're reading, I just want you to be thinking about how you feel about him. Is your reaction to him an ah, or is it an ooh? Okay, so the passage is John, chapter five. Please do turn to it, or um, open it up on your device. And we're reading from chapter, from verse one of chapter five in John's Gospel. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. 
The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Well, I wonder as you read this story, how you feel about him, the man. Some of you are really, really nice. And as you read it, you probably thought, ah, and there's good reason. Let's just think of some of the reasons. Here's the site where Jesus found the man. It's a pool called Bethesda or Bethsaida, and it means literally house of mercy, which is a fitting term for the desperate state of the people who were lying there. It was pretty much a derelict building. It was actually an abandoned pool that used to be used to clean the lambs that were used in the sacrifices in the temple. So it was a lamb washing area, really, that had been abandoned. So think derelict, think graffiti, think disrepair a place that no one else wanted. And it says in verse three that a great number of disabled people used to lie in this place that no one else wanted. Now, why was that? Well, they weren't really that welcome in the temple. According to the scholar, Linda Olsvig Whittiger, and these are her terms, not mine, Male Jewish cripples could, no, could go no further than the steps from the court of the Israelites to the court of the priests, and that is where they stopped. It should be noted that crippled Kahinim, priests or Levites, could not serve in the temple. So they're pretty much banned from certain areas in the temple, which would have made them straight away feel not welcome. Why do young people go and hang around at a play park in the evening? probably because they're not welcome at home or anywhere else. Another reason why this guy might deserve a bit of an R is that he'd been there for 38 years, we're told in verse 5. That's longer than many people lived during that time. So he's probably a well-known character at the pool. Imagine living like that in a derelict building day after day for 38 years. A third reason is found in verse five. One who was there had been an invalid. Let's just think about that word for a moment, invalid. There's two meanings to the word invalid. It means firstly, a person disabled by illness or injury. And secondly, not valid, not strong, infirm, impotent, feeble, inadequate. Imagine having that term put on you, invalid. 
I think it's really helpfully illustrated in the film Gattaca. In the film Gattaca, a world is imagined where people genetically engineer their offspring to the point where they eliminate every supposed defect, from just wearing glasses to heart defects. The word invalid is used to describe someone who has not been genetically engineered, someone who's had a faith birth, or whose parents have taken their chances with nature to have a child in an old-fashioned way. It's worth a watch, and it begs the question, do we ever treat people with disabilities as invalid? Do we really see people with disabilities? Do we ignore a person because he or she is different? Do we have a pool of Bethesda, a separate place within our church? And there are huge social consequences of having an us and them. As we subconsciously eliminate people from our attention because they are other or different, our world can get smaller and smaller and smaller. And who can actually put ourselves in the inn? We only have to watch Love Island to see the consequences of having a very, very small, narrow group of people together in one place. It's quite hideous, isn't it? But we can feel, we can all feel invalid because we are too chatty, too quiet, too motherly, too single, too young, too married. Who here has ever felt inadequate or socially invalid? I'm sure all of us could raise our hands. Feeling equally valid, feeling consulted, feeling part of is such an important kingdom value. I just felt we had to highlight that today. And the guy in the story knew exactly how it felt to be invalidated. Another reason why he deserves our sympathy is that he was given false hope. A footnote on verse four reads, some manuscripts include here that they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Oh, how exciting, a divine game show. These guys all had to wait around the pool for an angel to decide it was time to come down, run their fingers through the water, and whoever made it into the water was the first one healed. The trouble with this amazing idea was that these people were paralyzed. What a sick joke. What sort of a god would invent something like that? These people, can you imagine them scrambling over each other, trying to get in, in this dilapidated old building, to be the first one to be healed? This verse is rightly left out of the Bible because it only appears in some of the manuscripts and it doesn't really reflect the God that we know. It's just not how he rolls. Another reason is that he was friendless. Verse seven, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Perhaps he's given up hope because there's no one there to help him. Unlike the guy who was lowered down from the roof by his four friends, maybe he just had no one fighting his corner anymore. But Jesus seeks him out, verse eight. He heals the guy without a cruel, sick joke of a, of a divine game show, without a fanfare, without even reference to this pool on which they were all pinning their hopes. 
He just does it with a word. And the guy picks up his mat and walks out of the derelict, dingy ex-animal washing site for good. So here's a summary of what we'd learned so far about the guy's plight. Banned from certain areas of the temple, 38 years living with disabilities, false hope and friendless. So lots of us will agree, won't we, that Jesus did the right thing in seeking him out. And if you agree, can I hear an ah? Awesome. Lots of support for him. But there may be a few clues in the story that point to a slightly less sympathetic reading of the man's situation. And for this, I need this schoolmaster's gown. I knew it would come in useful. The first hint we have is in verse 6, where Jesus asks, do you want to get well? What a funny question. Didn't everyone who lay down there want to get well? Remember that the way he usually did healings was that he was interrupted on his way somewhere, or someone came after him, or someone shouted to him. Often people show faith before Jesus responds and heals. But this guy doesn't seem to be out there seeking his healing, does he? In fact, he uses a funny word for Jesus when he speaks to him. Did anyone notice the word he used? Sir, not Lord, not even Rabbi. This guy is completely oblivious to who Jesus is. And he shouldn't be. In John's gospel, Jesus has already cleared the temple in chapter two, and he's done loads of miracles. Verse 23 of the same chapter says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. Where has this guy been? In this depiction by Karl Block, he is painted as embedded. He has made a nest, a home for himself at the water's edge. Is he resigned rather than proactive in seeking wellness? Secondly, he makes excuses. There's no one there to help me. Someone else goes down ahead of me. 38 years of someone else getting in before him. Compare him, for example, to the bleeding woman. She has spent all her money on doctors. She risks everything to get herself to Jesus, and she is rewarded. In fact, they both get healed. It's all about God's grace, isn't it? It's not about how much we deserve it or have sought it out. Thirdly, blame. When challenged about carrying his mat on the Sabbath, what does he say? He says, that guy that healed me told me to do it. Well, everyone who's been a teacher knows that one doesn't really go down very well, does it? What would we say if someone said, Johnny told me to do it? If Johnny told, me to put your, told you to put your finger in the fire, would you? We'd always say that, wouldn't we? So no, that one doesn't cut the mustard either. And then he also is stirring up trouble. Look at verse 15. Unlike the wise men who refused to go back to Herod and tell him where the baby lay, this guy trots back to the Pharisees. He seeks them out to tell them, oh, I found the guy, by the way, that you're annoyed with, who told me to carry the mat. I found him, and his name is Jesus. These are the Pharisees. These are the people who eventually got Jesus killed. We could have a case for this guy contribu contributing to Jesus' death. So, some of us will view the guy in the story in a less than sympathetic light. Let's just see the summary of his Ooh, nice. 
He was embedded, he makes excuses, he shifts the blame, and he stirs up trouble. Using your volume to show how much ooh you believe he deserves, let's hear an ooh. Okay, okay, a little bit, not too much. So it may not be hard to see why Jesus says what he says in verse 14. I think the verse is going to come up on the screen now. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Something worse? Worse than 38 years of being an invalid. 38 years of living with false hope, without friends, in a dilapidated old sheep washing area. What could be worse than that? Well, the answer is sin. We see it in the healing of the paralytic. The first thing Jesus says to that guy is not you're healed, it's your sins are forgiven. Then he heals him. Time and time again, Jesus is showing the real problem. The real problem is sin. And we see it here. John Altberg says this. What is unique about sin is that it does not just happen to us, it happens in us. The deepest part of the person is the will, and the will can choose sin until it gets embedded in our bodies. Sin carries a moral weight that illness, no matter how awful, does not. Jesus doesn't warn the man because he is embedded in his disability. He warns the man because he is embedded in his sin. He's made a home for himself within his sin. And that is more tragic even than life debilitating illness. See you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. But what is sin? We don't use the word sin very much today. We don't like to talk about it, do we? And we often tend to think of big sins like drug addiction and violence. But it can be a whole range of tendencies Here's one description from Russell Brand, that famous theologian. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Being human is a me too business. We are all in the mud together. He then goes on to say, the 12-step program which has saved my life will change the life of anyone who embraces it. I have seen it work many times with people with addiction issues of every hue. Drugs, sex, relationships, food, work, smoking, alcohol, technology, pornography, hoarding, gambling, everything. Because the instinct that drives the compulsion is universal. It is an attempt to solve the problem of disconnection, alienation and tepid despair, because the problem is ultimately being human in an environment that is curiously ill-equipped to deal with the challenges that entails. We are all on the addiction scale. Now, you might be hearing that list of addictions and thinking, no, none of those apply to me. I'm not a drug addict, etc. But, it says in 1 Timothy 5, some sins are obvious, others secret. And I wonder whether our reaction to the man at the pool of Bethesda can help us to identify our secret sin. If you are more of an ah than an ooh, we might need to beware of the sin of self-pity 
entitlement and a victim mentality. If you're a naturally sympathetic person, you tend to feel others and your own pain acutely. And this is a wonderful thing. We really need compassion. But they can be overused on others and on ourselves. So we can stop talking about sin altogether and instead use words like sickness or issues. John Ortberg again. When we shift from the moral domain to the therapeutic, we actually lose freedom. We move from responsibility to victimhood. Paradoxically, we have found that examining our problems as accountable moral agents who need God actually decreases our sense of victimhood and increases strength. Jesus doesn't treat the guy at the pool as a victim. He treats him as a responsible moral agent and that conveys dignity and strength on him. We should do that for ourselves and each other too. We should not downgrade sin. That doesn't serve us well. But if you are more of an ooh than an ah, then we also have something perhaps that could be a secret sin. The sin of being judgmental, proud, and having a works mentality. Look at the Pharisees in the passage in verse 10. This guy has been an invalid for 38 years and he's just been healed. And he picks up his mat. Can you imagine how this guy feels? He has not been able to carry this mat for 38 years. He's going to carry his mat. He's going to do the mat strut through the temple. And he is doing the mat strut through the temple, going, look at me. Come and ask me about it. Look, isn't this amazing? And the Pharisees come up to him and they go, woohoo, what happened to you? I remember you used to be down at the sheet gate. Wow, this is amazing. No, they don't. Or they come up to him and they go, oh my word, you got healed. Tell us, who was it? We'll go and find it. It must be the Messiah. No, they don't. They say, um, you're not allowed to carry a mat in the temple. <laughs> I just think you should have let the man carry his mat. Is the tendency to judge others and ourselves the battle? Do we feel in when we're behaving well and out when we're behaving badly? Are we tempted to neglect the feelings of others as we go about ticking off our own to-do lists and neglecting to just be and enjoy the God-given moment? Perhaps this is our secret sin. But whatever our sin is, whether it's an obvious addiction or whether it's a tendency to victimhood or a tendency to judgmentalism, is there an alternative and from the passage, the answer is yes. And the alternative, you might not like it, but the alternative to an ooh and ah is a bar. Can I get a bar? <laughs> Being a sheep. Verse two. There is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Beth Esther, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. If you look at this picture of where the pool was located, you can see the entrance to the temple is the Sheep Gate. And Josephus 
who's one of the scholars that we rely on the most, a Jewish scholar for authenticity, tells us there were nine gates, but that Jesus pretty much every single time, apart from one, uses this gate, the sheep gate. Why? Well, the sheep gate led out to the sheep markets where the lambs were sold to be sacrificed in the temple. And it also led to Golgotha, the path that Jesus took down to crucifixion. By using the sheep gate, Jesus is saying two things about his identity. About himself, he is saying, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. About us, he is saying, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. A sheep comes in by the sheep gate. When I first became a Christian, um, I really enjoyed God's presence. I really enjoyed everything that you get when you have a relationship with God. I enjoyed that closeness. I enjoyed the freedom of walking side by side with God when I was a child. But I probably also looked at my classmates and thought, oh, I'm a good girl, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm doing everything right, and they're not. But when I was about 15, I actually heard the gospel for the first time. And it broke me, absolutely broke me. What? My friendship with God took that. It took blood to be spilt. It took Jesus to go to the cross with all my sin and shame on his arms. And those nails went into those arms. And he was, he was killed for my sin and for your sin, once and for all separated from God. What must that have been like for Jesus to have been separated from his father by the impact of sin? When I learned that, it absolutely cut me to the heart. And I want to stay in that place every day. I want to stay in that place where my sin cuts him to the heart, cuts me to the heart, because it separates me from God and, it, and it's been won at great cost. My forgiveness has been won at great cost. And I tell you, I'm going to be honest with you, I find my sin so frustrating. Time and time again, I do the same things over and over again. But that is what we're called to, isn't it? Is that fight, to let that hurt us, to let that cut us to the heart every day and turn us to Jesus so that we can just say with joy, isn't it wonderful that we're forgiven? but I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep throwing my weight behind the power that God gives me by his spirit. And I'm going to keep trying to reach that standard that Christ has won for me. There is no other way to enter into that life. Not yoga, not meditation, not trying harder, nothing. Salvation is through Jesus alone. Can I get an amen? amen. So a sheep comes in by the sheep gate. Secondly, a sheep will find pasture. See, you are well again, Jesus said. You've come in by the sheep gate, but something's going wrong. He says, stop sinning. Rather than continuing with the shepherd, this sheep has wandered off. He's back to old grazing grounds, old habits, not the pasture that Jesus has in mind for him. This isn't a warning for people with disabilities or people on the addiction scale. This is a warning for all of us. Do we come to church regularly? receive a dollop of grace, get prayer, sing with our hand up, and then do we go away and carry on embedding ourselves in our sin of choice? Jesus is saying, no. You have to continue 
to live in the new life you've been given. Philippians 2 verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Coming through the gate is easy, but staying in the pasture land, that's what's hard, isn't it? But what does the pasture land look like? It's wonderful, isn't it? It looks like a heart of thanksgiving. It looks like delight in the simple pleasures of life. The birds singing, the green grass, nature. It looks like enjoying time with your family and loved ones. A good marriage. All the other pastures promise much, deliver little. Adultery promises excitement and fulfillment. It delivers pain and regret. Pride promises success and empowerment. It delivers disappointment. Victimhood promises protection and comfort. It delivers isolation. In contrast to these pastures that just deliver loneliness, being a sheep is a team business. So thirdly, a sheep stays with the flock. Trying to deal with our sin on our own is a really bad idea, but that's what I do so often. So often if I'm struggling with something, I just think to myself, I just need to try harder. I just need to work more. But the truth is, what I'm coming to learn in this season for me is that we need a team. I need a team. You need a team. Jesus even needed a team. Look at verse 17. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father model to us perfectly how it is to live in community. And that's how we must always be. One of the reasons the 12-step program is so successful is the emphasis on others, on having a team. And perhaps our gatherings just sometimes look a bit more like that, where we come broken, we come as we are, and we can share with each other our vulnerabilities. So who are we walking with in our struggle? Who is walking close to the shepherd? Let's get close to them. Who is mentoring you? To whom are you accountable? Who in our lives has permission to ask us hard questions? Hebrews 12 verse four says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It is hard work, but as someone said, God does 99% of the work. We do the 1%, but the 1% is quite important. So to conclude, victim, judge, or sheep. A sheep takes responsibility, doesn't cling to victimhood, and doesn't make judgments of themselves or others. Is our one and only ambition in life to be a sheep? to stay as close to the shepherd as possible and bring as many other sheep near him as we possibly can. I want to make that my goal. So some conclusions. Our real problem is not the biggest problem we think we have. Our real problem is sin. And we're all in it together. We can't keep quiet about that. The solution is to become a sheep to come through the sheep gate. And the challenge is to stay in the pasture, and we need others to help us to stay in the pasture with the flock and with Jesus, the good shepherd. Some responses we might have to the word today. At coffee time, you might want to find someone 
who is in a different group to you. I just encourage that today. Let's not stick to who we know. Please, let's just go and talk to someone you've never spoken to before. They may be a different age to you. They may look different. Go and say hello. Or you may want to just take out your journal and jot down what your sin is, what you want to change, how you're going to do it, and to whom you're going to be accountable. Or finally, you might want to lay aside pride or that sense of being a victim or otherness and just come up for prayer and be prayed for with the family of God. We really do need each other. Let's stand.